Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Human Circus. When last we left our traveler, for now Mendez Pinto and the ships he traveled with had turned away from a sinking wreckage, the not particularly fruitful fruit of their piracy. They had turned toward that trading factor, the one who they were to find in the land of Prester John, a murky and very much movable location that by this point was generally located in and around Ethiopia. It was a situation I talked about in the Prester John series, but I did not talk about Pinto there. Within the context of that story of the legendary priest king, he was a footnote, flitting ashore at Masawa in present-day Eritrea and finding someone waiting for them there. Not the factor who his captain sought, a man named Enrique Barbosa, but a soldier who Barbosa had sent to wait on any Portuguese ships that might come by. A man who had waited already for a month to give them a letter and to direct them inland, where Barbosa and forty other Portuguese guarded the mother of Prester John. The title by this point simply referring to the Ethiopian ruler. Pinto's contribution did not add to the Prester John tradition in any substantive way, and there has been some suspicion that this was because Pinto didn't actually go there at all, borrowing instead from a reading of the early 16th century report, a true relation of the lands of Prester John, the work of Father Francisco Alvarez a Portuguese missionary who did indeed spend some time there in the 1510s and 20s, not the one of the same name, who was waylaid en route to Brazil and slain by Calvinist pirates. Pinto, some have thought, attached himself to details from the missionary's report, and in the story, he attached himself to a four-person venture inland, to see Barboza and the royalty which the man apparently protected. As tended to be the way with Pinto, he spun all of this off into other happenings, into events near and far. 
Pinto referenced the city east of Aden, where Barbosa and his men had narrowly escaped being captured and given over to the Ottomans, something which had happened to many of the Portuguese there, along with their ships, that would be later put to Ottoman use as supply vessels. Pinto wrote of how the governor they met in Prester John's land had received his richly decorated horse as a gift, that the man who delivered it to him had been captured in Cairo, and that the governor had attempted to ransom him with the help of a Jewish merchant. The unfortunate captive, whose name matches with that of a captain known to have sailed to India in 1505, was already dead. There was a lot of this sort of thing. Pinto and the others rested at a monastery where they saw the most impressive funeral service he had ever seen. They met Barbosa and his forty Portuguese, well-treated, they heard, but terribly homesick. And they met Prester John's mother, who received them cordially, and, on parting, provided them with gifts, little presents of money for themselves, and a rather more substantial one for the Viceroy of India. It was something in gold that would never reach its intended destination, and neither would the Ethiopian cleric who went with them. For Pinto's ominous statements at the outset of this Red Sea venture would now be borne out. Pinto and the others were nine days waiting at their ships for provisions and preparations. They were sailing an hour before dawn, and do not seem to have gone so very far when they sighted three sails that they believed to be friendly. The wind failing them, they resorted to oars to get closer, straining for some time, until they had gotten close enough to be certain that they had been quite mistaken. Pinto had recently been on one side of a one-sided struggle at sea. Now, now he was going to be on the other. The Portuguese did their best to flee from the danger that they'd so unwisely approached and invited. But it was too late. They'd been seen, were pursued, and were fired upon. As they came within cannon shot range, Pinto wrote, they fired all their guns at us, killing nine men instantly and wounding twenty-six others. And with our foists disabled by then, for most of the rigging was thrown into the sea, the Turks lay so close aboard that from their deck they were cutting us up with their lances. When the ship-to-ship fighting had finished, only eleven on the Portuguese side still lived, and two of them would die the next day of untreated head wounds, followed by the Ethiopian cleric, like a model Christian, setting an inspiring example, Pinto wrote, making it eight. Pinto was, as you might imagine, one of those eight survivors, and as for what would become of him, we'll get into that today. Hello and welcome. My name is Devon, and this is Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World, the podcast covering the stories of those who traveled that world and the histories around them. 
and it is a podcast with a Patreon, one where you can listen earlier, more often, and without many ads. And you can do so at patreon.com forward slash human circus for as little as a dollar a month, or as much as makes sense to you. Thank you very much, everyone who is already doing so. And now, back to the story. Back to the Pinto story. Last time out, we talked of his historical context, and what we know of his personal one. We saw how he came from humble beginnings, at least as he told it. How a relative had brought him to Lisbon, and how it had not at all gone well for him there. Some unnamed trouble, driving him out of the house of a noblewoman, and immediately into further issues aboard a ship that was taken by pirates. Pinto was unceremoniously deposited ashore, it could have been a lot worse, and was five years or so in service in Setubal before he left Portugal in search of better life and better pay. He had not, thus far, found what he'd sought. This episode will see him muddling along in Portuguese India, taken here, taken there, whisked about by larger events, and sometimes not so large. He would tell of this and that, naming the figures who crossed his path, and the places he was carried to and from. He was, to this point, something of a passenger, soon to be bound further east. As we left him a moment ago, Pinto was being forcibly seized from his ship, as one of very few who had survived to be taken prisoner. Taken again, the second such occasion of the thirteen he had written of, if we're keeping track. And we are. As we left him, Pinto was perhaps borrowing a little, from a Jesuit's letter to the Ethiopian patriarch. A letter in which the Jesuit described being taken by an Ottoman ship, beaten, and brought to a Red Sea port. It was all very coincidental, as was the date that the letter was published, about the time that Pinto was writing his book. Pinto and the other captives were apparently brought to shore at the port city of Mocha in Yemen the opposite shore of the Red Sea from the one which he'd just left, and further south. He was brought through the city in a triumphant display, accompanied by shouts and music, abuse heaped upon them from all sides, even from above. Even the cloistered women from the seclusion of their balconies, and children of all ages, wrote Pinto, poured the contents of their bedpans over us as a measure of their hatred and disdain for the Christian name. Respite, when it came, was only in the form of an underground dungeon. Seventeen days, Pinto says they spent there, subsisting on a daily pinch of barley meal, or else the raw grain wetted in water. And after that, it was to be the auction block, but that would not go smoothly at all. 
just as Pinto himself was about to be auctioned. There was disagreement over what should be done with the captives. There were seven of them now, something apparently having happened to the unaccounted-for eighth, unless Pinto was simply not counting himself. And there were those present, one speaker in particular, who thought that the captives should be given as gifts when the city's commander made his pilgrimage. There were those given voice in Pinto's account by the captain of one of the ships that had taken him, that thought the first speaker ought to, quote, distribute some of his excess income to the poorest soldiers instead of constantly trying to rob them of what was rightfully theirs with his hypocritical speeches. I don't see any bloodstains on your tunic, the man concluded, which is something no one can say about mine, or the ones that these poor soldiers are wearing. To make a long story short, wrote Pinto, the rioting escalated into such a harsh, furious battle that when it finally ended, more than 600 lives were lost on both sides, and more than half the city was sacked. As for he and the other Portuguese, they saw no choice but to flee for the relative safety of the dungeon, and felt only relief when its door was closed behind them. Once matters settled, they'd be back in the square and up for auction, the man who had argued that they ought to go as gifts, having been killed and cast into the ocean. Pinto's buyer was a, quote, Greek renegade, a convert, a status which perhaps fueled some of his animosity towards the man, if any fuel were needed, beyond being bought and further mistreated. I don't suppose much was. Pinto had what sounds like a hard three months of abuse. Enough, he says, that he felt tempted to take his own life and rob the man of his investment. But those around the slaveholder apparently also saw risk of him losing that investment. And their warnings, that fear, convinced him to sell Pinto for a quantity of dates. Things though it does not seem obvious at this point, were improving. The new buyer was named Abraham Musa, a Jewish man from northeastern Egypt, who now took Pinto by caravan and boat to the island of Keshem in the Strait of Hormuz, the waterway between the Persian Gulf and that of Oman. And Abraham really did well for both of them by taking him there, where he contacted a pair of Portuguese notables and agreed a ransom fee for Pinto's release. Pinto was back. He was back up and running. He was free, and he did not use that freedom to do much in the way of rest and relaxation in his new and very striking surroundings. Maybe that wasn't an economically viable option. Pinto boarded a ship, just over two weeks later, and sailed for India, along with a cargo of horses. After 17 days at sea, he was approaching the fortress of Diu, there in the south of Gujarat, where, fairly quickly, something didn't seem right. There were, to start with, fires in the darkness along the coast, along with the occasional burst of artillery, which was troubling 
There was also, when the sun came up, a large fleet to be seen between them and the fortress, which provoked discussion and varying theories as to the fleet's identity. Was it that of the governor of Goa, come to arrange peace after the trouble he'd stirred up? Many apparently thought so. Or was it, as others wagered, the Infante Dom Luis, brother of King Joao III, and recently arrived in Portugal? Perhaps it was true. It was a particular Muslim merchant and admiral, some claimed, with a fleet from Calicut. Or else, the quote-unquote Turk, as others said, and quote, the reasons for saying so made good sense. As it turned out, they made incredibly good sense. Much as it happened to that other ship Pinto had recently been on, much as it happened all too painfully recently, the sails that now turned their way in what one could only call pursuit were indeed hostile. The difference this time was that Pinto's ship, rushing desperately for the open waters, would actually get away. Pinto didn't have to be captured every time in this story. Heading south and reaching Chol days later, they were told that a great fleet was besieging Diu, not that they really needed that confirmed. They were told of the large guns its ships wielded, the evocatively named wall-breakers, lions, spheres, and basilisks, among other machines of death. They prayed in thanks for their lucky escape, and the next morning they sailed on, not getting very far before they encountered a squadron of three Portuguese ships, a squadron whose commander had orders from the Portuguese viceroy, and a pressing need for men. After some discussion, civil and uncivil, it was agreed that twelve on Pinto's ship would go, and he, of course, would be one of them, writing that, quote, I was always the first to be cast aside, noting something of a narrative necessity as a kind of hard luck trait. Pinto was whisked off in a new direction, carried south to the port of Dabul, where the Portuguese seized a ship loaded with cotton and pepper, and tortured its captain into revealing that an Ottoman vessel had been there just a few days earlier, with an ambassador aboard. The ambassador's business had not gone well, and the ship had left without replenishing its supplies. The captain promising violence once Diu had fallen. The Portuguese went to Goa then, Pinto going with them. They found a group of five ships preparing to sail south for Hanavar, found a captain friend of Pinto's, another one, who provided him with some money for clothing, other soldiers around him chipping in with a few essentials. You get these sorts of autobiographical moments knitted in among the broader action, and certainly get no shortage of names, most of which I'm not troubling you with. This commander, that captain, another merchant or soldier. Pinto was going south to Hanavar next, arriving with, quote, a thunder of artillery and with the spars lashed together in the form of a sword 
as a sign of war, playing the fife and drum as loud as we could for the benefit of the local people, trying to make it appear with this outward show of bravery that we were not afraid of the Turks. One senses that there was, at least, a bit of trepidation, but for what there was to fear and for what would come of it, we'll return after this quick break. Pinto and the others had pulled into the port of Hanovar, the famously beautiful port of Hanovar, I should say, with the rich history of hosting trade. As for the Portuguese, they were there to see its quote-unquote queen. Exactly who, I'm not certain. Other chroniclers are silent as to this expedition, though some of the names Pinto mentions as being involved do make other appearances. The Portuguese captain was Gonzalo Vascutinho, a man known for having later been imprisoned for what Rebecca Katz will only describe as ugly crimes, before escaping and taking up the life of a pirate. He would eventually be recruited as a spy against the Portuguese, and given land well out of their reach on which to live. But that was all still well in his future. For now, Coutinho sent a man ashore to ask the queen why it was that she harbored the villainous Turks and their galley up the river, why she sheltered the enemy of her good friends, the Portuguese. The reply the queen gave was polite, but unhelpful. She had, she insisted, no wish to side with their enemies. She simply didn't have the power to drive them off. If these new arrivals wished to do so, she would be entirely delighted. Grumbling to himself, the Portuguese representative went away to report what she'd said, and a council was called. What were they to do? Honor, it was decided, demanded that they capture the enemy galley, or, if they could not do so, that they destroy it by fire. All who had taken part in the decision agreed. They swore to it, and that, apparently not being quite enough, they then signed the document that was written up to that effect. The endeavor, then well and truly committed to, they went upriver, looking for their enemy, finding first a much friendlier vessel. It was a little boat that rowed up to them, the man aboard it bringing a warning from the queen. She'd said that she would be happy if they drove out the Ottoman vessel, but she'd since learned of the enemy position, solidly entrenched, too solidly for a force the size of the Portuguese one. She urged them not to go on, but her messenger did so in vain, coming away from the encounter with a bolt of camel hair cloth and a nice satin-lined hat, but not having changed any minds. As they looked to press on, the Portuguese gathered intelligence as to their target, heard that the galley had been moved into a drainage channel and a high stockade constructed near it, complete with 26 artillery pieces, and all of it apparently done with the Queen's permission. 
I suppose she might have said that she had little choice but to grant it. The information was, I would think, off-putting in the extreme, but Pinto and the others were not dissuaded. They had signed that document, after all. They were going to carry on, and Pinto was going to give us quite a detailed look at this fairly small-scale military engagement, bringing us into the chaos of just one of many of that period, involving the Portuguese along the Indian coast. Coutinho began the assault by taking 80 men ashore, 100 kept back at the boats, and in quote, proper military formation, he advanced. There was an initial clash, about 25 to 30 paces from the stockade, an initial toll of an estimated 45 people before the Ottomans withdrew. There was a rush forward. Then, to quote Pinto, Coutinho closed in on them again, and as God willed, they suddenly turned and fled retreating in a disorderly fashion, to all appearances like men who had been completely routed. Seeing them run, our men followed them into the stockade, where they turned about and faced us once more. At this point, the confusion and the press of bodies was so great that some of the men received blows in the face from the pommels of their own swords. A very evocative and, indeed, claustrophobia-inducing detail. Then the Portuguese boats came rowing into play, artillery pieces firing as they did so, and bringing down ten or twelve men, Pinto highlighting the distinctive green caps of the fallen. The momentum seeming to swing his way, Coutinho took the opportunity to hurl firepots into his opponent's galley sending its people scrambling to quickly put out the flames. An artillery piece was fired, of the quote, camel type, by Pinto's estimation, spraying the Portuguese with stone shot that immediately killed six of them and injured a further fifteen. There were rallying cries from both sides, and a Portuguese rush into the stockade. But near its entrance, a mine was set off, Six fell, immediately killed. Many others were badly burned, and a cloud of smoke enveloped them all. At this, Coutinho signaled the withdrawal, and gathering up their dead and wounded, the Portuguese took to their boats in frustration and defeat. Of the eighty who had gone ashore, fifteen were dead and fifty-four wounded, nine of them, Pinto wrote, permanently disabled. Of all their losses, Coutinho surely felt that of his son to artillery fire the most. And one can hardly blame him if that influenced his reaction to the Queen's people the following morning. They had brought provisions, a generous supply of fresh poultry and eggs, according to Pinto. But Coutinho angrily sent them and their supplies away, and, quote, lashed out against their queen, and said a few things that were perhaps unduly harsh, adding the threat that the queen's status as a friend and ally would be reviewed once the viceroy heard of what had happened, of her, quote, treachery 
in aiding and abetting the Turks. The Portuguese dead, his own son included, would be left behind as a reminder, and as a testament, that he meant what he said. Suitably startled, though she had, in fairness, warned the Portuguese about the danger, the Queen followed up with another representative the next day, promising that she was indeed a good friend to the Portuguese, and that she would drive out the enemy ship from her territory herself. She just needed some time, four days in which to do so. It was all reasonable enough, and Coutinho, having had a bit of time to calm himself, agreed, renewing the existing peace treaty that held between the two. But the condition of his wounded did not allow him to stay and see out the four days to judge the queen's success for himself. Leaving a representative to do so, he set sail for Goa, and Pinto, unless I'm missing something, would not return to the matter or tell the reader what had come of it, of the queen's efforts to expel that ship. He had other things to think about. For one, he was injured, having himself received two wounds in the fighting. For another, he was, as he puts it, destitute, with no means of support. By his telling, the existence of a soldier at sea had not suited him very well so far. Seeing him captured, sold into slavery, ransomed, and only provisioned by the charity of those around him, it cannot have been the life he dreamed of in leaving Portugal. Pinto had been twenty-three days recovering in Goa, when he took the advice of a friendly priest and offered its service to a nobleman named Pero de Feria, the newly appointed captain of Malacca, who was known to be recruiting men to join him there. He assured Pinto that he would look after his personal interests as best he could. But there was just one thing they had to do first, before they could go. The viceroy was gathering a great fleet to relieve the siege at Diu. Pero was to be part of it, and now so too was Pinto. He'd been chased off from Diu not all that long ago, earlier this episode, in fact. Now, he was going back, and with numbers not the kind to be chased off so easily. To that end, the viceroy had, quote, gathered a huge, beautiful armada of 225 sails that was said to be carrying a total expeditionary force of 10,000 elite troops along with 30,000 deckhands, able-bodied seamen, and Christian slaves, though only 83 of the ships were multi-decked vessels, and the rest just galleys, brigantines, and foists. As you might expect, gathering such a huge, beautiful armada, even if it wasn't actually a full 225 sails, took a fair bit of time. It wasn't accomplished overnight. Wasn't done without everyone else getting a pretty clear sense of what you were up to. Something Pinto acknowledged with reference to all the interested parties who had their people busily at work in Goa, keeping them up to date on the Portuguese movements. And maybe that was the point. The intent. The Viceroy went aboard on November 14th 
1538. And five days later, he was still aboard, but not going anywhere. And that's where and when he was, waiting still for more to board, when word came that the siege of Diu had lifted. The threat of the Armada's imminent arrival had been enough. That is how the decision to abandon the siege has generally been explained. Hadim Suleiman Pasha, pulling back from a looming threat, just as he seemed on the brink of victory. The governor of Ottoman Egypt and the commander of the expedition had reduced the fortress's defense to such an extent that by some accounts it had no munitions left, and only forty soldiers healthy enough to wield arms. Suleiman had managed an enormous diplomatic effort to bring his huge fleet to bear and coordinate an alliance that stretched across the Indian Ocean and included impounded Venetian vessels and their crews that had been pressed into action, and possibly coordination with Portugal's enemies in Sumatra. Suleiman is generally blamed for this massive campaign's failure for cowardice in avoiding the clash with the viceroy, or else for a reputation for brutal duplicity that rendered the maintenance of an alliance impossible. There had been a difficult moment for him before he'd ever actually reached his target, when he had to decide what to do about Aden. Itzamir had refused to receive his envoy, and indeed already held a history of hostility toward the Ottomans. But Suleiman couldn't just ignore the strategically located stronghold, so well positioned to meddle with his supply lines. His solution had been to invite the emir aboard his ship, and then have him hung from the yardarm and his citadel stormed by janissaries. It was the kind of expeditious, quick fix that tended to have consequences down the road. And indeed, in this case, it did, cementing Suleiman's untrustworthy status and repelling potential allies. It was only weeks later when Suleiman's embassy to one powerful Muslim ruler in India was rebuffed with the message that he would, quote, rather be a friend of the Portuguese who had taken Goa from him, then of the Grand Turk who promised to return it. A pretty damning assessment of character. And maybe Suleiman would have gotten away with a little unpredictable cruelty, a bit of betrayal of trust here and there, if he'd only joined it up to the right personality. But there, he had more problems, prone to tremendous fits of rage diplomatic blunders, and relationship-ruining displays of disrespect and even contempt, the sort of thing that made the Sultan of Gujarat withdraw his soldiers from the whole venture. Had he been courteous, wrote one of Suleiman's near-contemporaries, he would have received what he desired. But he was harsh and obstinate, nor was anyone inclined towards him more on conciliatory terms with him. He therefore accomplished nothing. As for Pinto, he wrote that the news that the siege had been lifted, that Suleiman had left, 
far from raising the mood among the men, spread a deep gloom, so eager had they been to get to grips with the enemy. One chronicler recorded that they were actually angry at the viceroy for what he'd robbed them of. But another acknowledged that it was a clever move, which accomplished its goal without the massive loss of life that rushing into combat would have entailed. So the viceroy did not hurry to get over to Diu. He still wanted to go. There was a lot to be done to repair and resecure the fortress, but he didn't need to rush about it. He started north up the coast on December 6th and paused for three days in Chol. He started across the Gulf of Kambat, the watery expanse in the south of Gujarat, and there, there was trouble. Perhaps some of those soldiers who were already angry at the Viceroy for his strategic foot-dragging felt that God was also angry at his unchristian timidity. Certainly, it must have occurred to some that if they had simply left earlier, they wouldn't have been exposed out there on that gulf when the storm struck, scattering the fleet and sinking a number of ships. One of the ships that went down was that captained by the Viceroy's son, though he would survive to die in quite another shipwreck on his way back to Portugal nearly two decades later. Eight other ships went down, by Pinto's count, and it was a further month before the Viceroy could recover from these losses and gather together with the storm and tossed in different directions. It was mid-January, when the fleet finally reached Diu, Pero de Feria and Pinto along with it. There was, of course, no longer any fighting to be done, but there was work. The combined Ottoman-Gujarati effort had left its mark upon the fortress, and the labor of undoing what they'd managed was divvied up among the different captains, with Pero and his men assigned to repairing the sea-facing bastion. That task took them the better part of a month, Pinto, though he doesn't say it, presumably working alongside the others. On March 14th, they left for Goa, stopping there to take on all the necessary provisions. And on April 13th, with 600 men and 13 ships, they sailed for Malacca, reaching the Portuguese fortress on June 5th. 1539. There, in what is now a Malaysian city, Pinto would begin a new phase of his life abroad, working as something of a diplomatic representative, and a commercial one, operating in and around Southeast Asia. For that phase, for his travels in Sumatra, his dealings with the king, and his part in warfare there, for his very nervous time before an elephant-mounted ruler, for the mysterious Isle of Gold, and more. We'll get into that next time. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you then.
human circus will return.